Now let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel according to John, and if you're using a church Bible, you'll find the reading is on page 1063, 1063, and for those of you who are using your own Bible, it is John's Gospel, chapter 1. Word of explanation here, uh, years ago, uh, you may remember if you were an Anglican or Episcopalian the Church of England had the bright idea of producing a whole series of alternative service books. And so there was series one, series two, series three, series four. I don't know how long it went on. And uh, we're really modeling ourselves on that at the moment. We have a series on Paul's letter to the Romans uh, going on. We have a series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians going on. We have a series on John's Gospel going on, and then we had a series on the prologue to John's Gospel, which uh, began as uh, one sermon introduction to the other series on John's Gospel, uh, but because of what happened the first night, it became an entire series all of its own, and uh, that series is almost past history now. Last time we were in the prologue was months ago. Uh, but we're back to series two, I think it is, this evening. We're going to read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then 14 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him, that's John the Baptist, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. I want to draw your attention again to verse 14 in this passage, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Within our series on John's gospel, there is a series on the prologue to John's Gospel, and within that series, there is a little mini-series on John chapter 1, verse 14, and this, God willing, is the third of four sermons on John 1, verse 14. Not so many words. Why so many words about not so many words? Perhaps because this may well be the greatest verse in John's Gospel. It may even be the greatest verse 
in the New Testament. It may even be the greatest verse in the Bible. You might think that perhaps the opening verse of the Bible, surely the greatest verse, God brings the world into being out of nothing. But it is really an even greater thing for God Himself to become part of the world that He has created without ceasing to be the Creator. And this is one of the points that John is making here as he introduces Jesus. His introduction is extraordinary from any point of view, because here is a Jewish author, a man who for decades was steeped in the traditions and teaching of the Old Testament Scriptures, the great Shema, the confession of faith of Israel, that the Lord your God, the Lord is one, a monotheist of monotheists. There is only one God. And yet it's not as though he slips in at the end, by the way, I need to tell you something about the nature of this God. It is that he tells us right at the very beginning in order that we may get a glimpse of what is really going to happen in this gospel, that this God is God the Father and God the Word. He tells us with an echo of the first verse of the Bible that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, as we've seen, face to face with God. And this Word who was face to face with God was Himself God. And now he's going on to say that this Word who was face to face with God and who was God has become flesh, and in becoming flesh has come face to face with us, and we have seen His glory. The background, of course, is the experience of Moses asking God, show me your glory. And God's saying to him, you remember in Exodus, nobody can see my glory and live. But allowing Moses to see, as it were, the, the backside of his presence on the mountain, allowing Moses in a different sense to come into the holy place so that in meeting with God, his face would shine. And then when he came out from that meeting with God, putting a veil over his face as that shining began to diminish, all a picture of our longing for the presence of God and our inability to stand the presence of God. And what John is saying and going to expound, as we've actually seen in reading through the gospel, is that the one who was face to face with God, as it were, turned towards us, came to us in the incarnation, took our flesh in such a way that John is able to say, as he does here in verse 14, we were able to behold His glory. And as the gospel writer takes us more and more into the intimacy of what Jesus has come to do, he makes it clear that this glory, instead of fading as the glory, the reflection on Moses' face faded this glory shines brighter and brighter 
and shines most brightly in the cross, in the moment supremely, when, as he says in chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him gave Him to the death of the cross, that whoever believes in Him might have eternal life, might share that life, might experience the answer to Jesus' prayer in chapter 17 and verse 24, Father, I pray that those You have given me may be with me where I am to behold my glory. And His glory exists in this, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. And now in this third statement, there's a statement obviously about the incarnation. There's a statement about the illumination that we enjoy as believers. We saw glory in Jesus, what we hadn't seen before, what others don't see through the ministry of God's Spirit. We have come to see in Jesus. We've come to see glory in Jesus. So, there's incarnation and there's illumination. But now, He takes us to the person who is engaged in that incarnation, to who it is from whom we get the illumination. And He tells us at last, interestingly, at last, who the Word is. And He puts it like this, the Word became flesh, we saw His glory, and that glory, He says, was the glory as of the only Son from the Father. God willing, we'll come to full of grace and truth. I want us to focus on these words. He was the only Son from the Father. And I want to try and look at this from two different perspectives. The first we might call the doctrine of Christ, and the second we might call the defense of Christ. If we're putting it in more technical terms, we are thinking, first of all, systematically about who Jesus is. And then we're going to try and think, if we've time, apologetically about how the gospel stands on its own feet, how it defends itself against all attack, and how we are able to do the same. So, first of all, I want us to look at the identity of the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we saw His glory. That glory was owned by, I'm using the English Standard Version here, the only Son from the Father. If you're using the New International Version, it's the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. But if some of you who are of a certain age or perhaps still prefer old-style English language, if some of you have the authorized version in your heart as the Bible that you functionally use, then you remember that the translation is quite different. It is the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And if you remember, if you're over, well, you need to be over 60 probably, 
these days or belong to one of those churches that insist the Apostle Paul used the King James Version. Um, you remember John 3.16 in similar terms, don't you? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, only begotten Son. So, what's going on here in our modern translations? Why don't they stick to the authorized version translation? Well, actually, this leads us into a hugely significant debate that there has been all through the history of the Christian church, but especially flourished in the early centuries. Because if we say that the Son is the only begotten of the Father, that raised some questions about the identity of Jesus. Some of you have heard about the Arian heresy at the beginning of the fourth century and uh, the Alexandrian priest, Arius, who partly on the basis of verses like this, partly on the basis of thinking about what the church was teaching, deduced from the idea that Jesus was the only begotten Son of the Father, that therefore, as the buzz phrase was, there must have been a time when He was not. If someone is begotten of another, that implies that the other who has begat them, to use the old language, is not only the, the fountain and origin of their existence, but actually precedes them. And so, it might be said that in some sense, Jesus is divine, but if He's divine, He belongs to the second rank. In some sense, He, he is a creation of God, a creation of God the Father. Of course, the response of the the orthodox Christians to that was to say, no, 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 you need to understand, and they slipped in a little adverb used as an adjective here, eternally begotten. He is eternally begotten of the Father. Now, look down at your New International Version or at your English Standard Version. And knowing that, knowing that, your problem entirely disappears, entirely disappears, or so it seems. No reference to only begotten whatsoever. Why did that cause so much fuss in the first place? Very simple reason, that if Jesus is not fully God, if Jesus is not absolutely God, then Jesus cannot possibly reconcile us to God. He is not God reconciling us to Himself. He is some kind of divine creature in between. And so, it's not surprising that the early Christian church got so concerned about this idea 
that the Lord Jesus was fully and absolutely God, but what John said at the beginning of John chapter 1 was really true. The Word was not only with God, but He was with God in the beginning, and He was with God in the beginning because He Himself was God. The Father was God, and the Son was God, although there are not two Gods. Any of you brought up again in the Episcopalian tradition where not only the Apostles' Creed but the Nicene Creed of 325 was in use will remember how in the fourth century the Christian church sought to state the truth in this way, that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And you've heard that before if you've ever sung hymns at Christmas time. In O come, all ye faithful, God of God, light of light. You see? They were saying there never was a time when the Son was not because He was eternally begotten of the Father. And yet, somehow that doesn't seem to solve the problem, does it? I mean, what is an eternal begetting? Even an eternal begetting suggests that the Father is the origin of the Son, and therefore, in some sense, the Son is in the second rank. His, his very being is dependent on something that the Father has done. And our modern versions, no problem. To these modern people? Well, no, it's not these modern people. It's really a better understanding of what the Scripture says. Because the, the word that's used here for only begotten in the King James Version really does mean the one and only the unique one. It might refer to somebody who was the only begotten, but it could refer to somebody who wasn't the only begotten. You see? Abraham has an only begotten son, except he has more than one son. So, in that kind of context, the word that's used here doesn't focus on the fact that someone is an only begotten, but that someone is a one and only. Uh, some of you might have said that in your most romantic moment to somebody. You are my one and only. In a sense, it's the equivalent of the voice that comes from heaven uh, at the transfiguration. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Actually, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used in, I think, Psalm 25, verse 16, where it translates the psalmist saying this, I am poor and lonely. It translates the word lonely. It doesn't mean I'm poor and I'm the only begotten. It means I'm poor and I'm absolutely alone. There's no one else in this situation. There's no one else like me in this situation. Absolutely all alone. And that's actually what John is saying here. He is saying, 
the one in whom we have seen the glory of God, is God's unique Son, God's absolutely unique Son. And He is the Word of God who was with Him from all eternity. And He is the one. He later goes on to say this, doesn't He, in verse 18. He is the one who is at the Father's side. Now, that's the same expression as is used in chapter 13 about John leaning on the bosom of the Lord Jesus at the Last Supper. That's the picture. It's the picture of an only son, a beloved son, in the bosom of his father. The father has no one like him. And John has made it clear right from the very beginning of this chapter that the one to whom he can like none is his only beloved son. And yet, you know, you might say, but surely if he is the son of the father, the father must have existed before him. Think about that in two ways. Number one, you cannot be a father unless you have a son. You cannot be a father unless you have a son. You have no entitlement. You might be a man, but you may not be a father. And the very fact that the word is called son implies that he has a father. And the very fact that the father is called the father implies that he has a son. You see, you see what John is driving at? He's saying no matter how far back you go into the mists of eternity, no matter how deep down you go into the mystery of God's being, you will never get to a place where He is not Father and Son. Ah, yes, Holy Spirit too, but for the moment, Father and Son. It's how He is. Ah, but people say that doesn't work. Um, Look at us, Father and Son. Those of you in the room who are fathers, you are here before the Son. It's part of the definition of Father and Son. Oh, no, it's not. It's part of the definition of Father and Son in tiny creatures whom God has made as miniature reflections of His infinite being. Do you notice a mistake that we often make in our thinking here. We begin with ourselves, and then we move upstairs to God. And I cannot emphasize too much to you how erroneous that is if God is really God. You see, what makes sense of all this is that when God made us as His image and likeness, He we are just specks of dust in the cosmos by comparison with His infinite greatness. And so, what He has done in this miniature world that He has created and in these miniature reflections of His glory is to, is to constitute human life so there are fathers and there are sons because of the way He's made us, because of the way He's made us of the same nature because He's made us out of the, the same original family. Being a father means that you precede the son. 
being a son means that in some sense you come from the Father. But what is true in the miniature need not be true in the original. Isn't that true? Isn't that true just generally in life? And you see, we need to learn to think. We need to learn to think this way about everything, friends, absolutely everything. To never think about God by beginning with man, but to think about both God and man by beginning with God. And isn't that exactly what John does in his gospel? Right from the get-go. It's almost as though he's saying subliminally to us, if you'll just think about what I'm saying, you'll never be in any danger of making this mistake of thinking that you make God in the image of man. You can shout man as loudly as you want, but you can never pronounce God by shouting man. No, you've got to begin with who God is and His absolute uniqueness and His his difference from you. Now, you see, this often gets to the very heart of uh, people because they, they do not like something that they cannot understand, especially if it's about God. They do not like something that they cannot understand, especially if it's about God, which is exactly what Nietzsche meant when he said, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? You see, this is how we're wired as sinners. We're wired to make God like ourselves, which is why people say the way I like to think about God is, I like to think about God as being more or less like me, but a little bigger and a little better. John is teaching us here how to think about Jesus Christ, how to think about God, that we begin with Him. And when we begin with Him, things begin to fit into place. That's why this statement is not only valuable from a kind of doctrinal or systematic theological point of view, it's really valuable from a from a defense of the gospel, a, an apologetical point of view, that He is the Son from the Father, and yet He is God at the Father's side. And someone says to me, well, explain this. Somebody said this to Hugh, didn't they? Way off on the other side of the world. Explain the Trinity. Explain the Trinity. Now, the first thing to say is, if I could explain the Trinity, I'd be a member of the Trinity. That's the first thing to say. Ah, someone will say, it's irrational. Your Christianity is irrational. When they say that, you can't explain the Trinity, can you? It's irrational. Well, there are things to learn here from the way in which John goes about his business as an evangelist. Let me just give you some headings here. The first is this. That statement expresses very bad logic. Because I can't understand it, it's irrational. You know, that would not get a very good grade in a logic exam in first-year university. It's used all over the planet at the moment by people who may be 
eminent thinkers in many fields, but usually not logic or philosophy. And those who are eminent in those fields will often say, give me that as your research paper and you might get a B. That's fallacious reasoning. If you can't explain it, it must be irrational. There's no connection whatsoever between us not being able to explain something and it being irrational. Because there's no connection whatsoever between my puny mind not being able to understand even the cosmos and the cosmos being irrational. Saying to somebody earlier on, I have a very dear friend. I saw him the other day, actually, in, in Columbia, South Carolina. He's been a professor of neuroanatomy. He's written a huge textbook on the brain. He opens the textbook by saying he hopes this book will help students and practitioners, usually people in medicine. It will help them to appreciate what little we understand about the brain. And I just repeat that to you. This is a man who has been examining brains for 45 years. What little we, not just me, not just him, what little we understand about the brain. You see the conclusion of that if you're thinking in these terms. Your brain's irrational. Well, your brain may be irrational. But that's not the point, is it? You know, it's so important that we learn to think with with the kind of logic that emerges from the Scriptures. Because from the get-go, the Scriptures tell us, little boy, little girl, this is a magnificent universe, and you hardly understand a fraction of it. That doesn't mean it's irrational because you don't understand it. I mean, think of the arrogance of this when it comes to the being of God. If I don't understand the creator of the universe, if I don't understand Him, then the very idea must be irrational. Who do we think we are? This is why, interestingly, rejection of the gospel is never purely intellectual. You scrape beneath the surface and you'll see a motive and so, it's so important that we understand that this kind of statement, this is, if you can't explain it to me, it must be irrational. It's simply bad logic. Actually, the second thing it is, is it's a very inconsistent argument. And, and we need to, you know, I think I've said before, you know, the question is, why does a rabbi answer a question with a question? The answer is, why not? You know, we need, to, we need to turn things back on people. You see? I don't believe anything I don't understand. What nonsense. What absolute nonsense. You and I understand almost nothing. And actually, most of the things that people trumpet as being reasons, scientific reasons for not believing in the existence of God, which itself is a nonsensical statement, they take them all on faith. How much science does your 
neighbor atheist round the corner actually know? He's likely to know almost nothing. And even if he's a rocket scientist, he just knows a lot about something that's absolutely miniature in terms of the whole cosmic structure of reality. My friends, if we, if we did not believe things that we don't fully understand, we would have difficulty getting out of bed in the morning. We really would. And sometimes, you know, the prophets do this, don't they? Sometimes we need to turn things around and say, so what do you believe in? Big Bang. Ah, Big Bang. Big Bang. How did the Big Bang bang? <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for that illustration. <laughs> no, what I believe in is evolution. In evolution. Evolution's, evolution's a, a theory about a mechanism. No, no, I believe in evolution. Well, where did evolution come from? You see, some of the some of the best of the atheistic minds, I'm absolutely convinced, are determined to find the singularity that explains everything because they have no explanation for reality. Because they know that nothing comes from nothing. And all that they say about how we are to interpret reality and origins and all the rest of it, you will find as you keep scratching that it depends on something else. And that, oh, I see. So, what you believe in is the eternity of matter. And there are people who believe in the eternity of matter. You know, what becomes crystal clear is that in all the scientific theories of origin and development, none of those theories that are founded on the eternity of matter can do anything to explain the human person. Because none of these mechanisms contain within themselves anything that leads to the human person. Which is why, answer the question with the question, which is why this, that most of the secular humanists you hear might in a very soft voice tell you what their real view of human life is, but they'll say it in a very soft voice, and they don't actually believe it in the sense that they are prepared to practice it. Why do I say that? Because the alternative to what John is speaking about here, at the end of the day, the alternative is this that we're just a bunch of chemical reactions. That's all we are. That's actually, dear friends, that's what, that's what these secular humanists who profess that their scientific views have destroyed the Christian faith, that is actually what they believe. And sometimes they'll say that's what they believe. So, invite them to live consistently with what they believe.
because it means, actually, it means that this sentence means nothing. It means it's just a bundle of, it's like the fireworks gone off there. It's just a bundle of, of, of neurons, chemical reactions, bunch of biochemical phenomena taking place. And that's what determines everything you do. So that when you hear great music, it's a figment of your imagination that you really think that that is great music. It's just a chemical reaction because that's all you are. You're just a bundle of chemicals. And sort of watchy, they'll say it. I've never forgotten as a student in the psychology class at university where my professor was the vice president of the British Humanist Association, and she gave a, an entire lecture on biological determinism. And the only way I can describe it, it would be like a, a rigid Calvinist giving a sermon to a bunch of wild Arminians about the sovereignty of God. There was uproar in the class, absolute uproar in the class, but actually she was just telling them what they themselves would have professed to be. There is no God. There's just evolution. There's just this mechanism that doesn't have the capacity to produce person. And so my friendship with the fellow I walked into the lecture hall with, it's, it's just chemistry. Just, we're just like human-shaped uh, test tubes, all this bubble, bubble, toil and trouble going on inside us. That's the alternative. But you see, the unbeliever can never face up to that alternative. Of course, we know from the Scriptures that he'll hide from that alternative, that he'll even deceive himself or herself about that alternative that he'll actually believe in love, that he'll believe in good things, that whatever he says, ultimately he'll believe there are moral absolutes, and that there are absolutes, or he would never declare there are no moral absolutes, because that's an absolute. And the person who says he doesn't believe in moral absolutes, that you need to carry a few pins around just to prick them, and say, oh, it's just a chemical reaction I was giving to you. No, he'll say, that was wrong. That was bad what you did. Let me chop off your head. And this, of course, is what the prophets do, isn't it? No, they, they're not always doing it. And so, you know, it'd be really bad if I preached sermons like this every time I preached. But sometimes they do. And expose the, the folly and the idolatry of it all. And you see, we can do all this if we, if we think from above, and if we understand that in the very in-being of God there is a Father and a Son. I wonder if you've noticed every, every theist that you've met who's not a Christian, I think that's probably true with exception. There are some really strange people around, I know, Every, every theist you meet believes God is love, don't they? I mean, have you ever really believed, met somebody who says, I really believe in God? I don't believe in your Christianity. I really believe in God, and the God I believe in is a God of love. And so, just think about it. Is he a megalomaniac? Is he an, an egomaniac? 
Has he kind of dwelt in some eternity where he's kind of like, excuse the language, but sometimes it may help. He suffers from a constipation of love because he's full of love and he's nobody to love. But you see, if he's a father and a son, not to mention the Holy Spirit, that comes later in John's gospel. He's someone to love. The thing about the doctrine of the Father and the Son and the doctrine of the Trinity is when I gaze into it, if I try and gaze right into it, it will blind me. But it's the truth in which the whole of reality is illumined and everything begins to make sense. So, this comment that John makes, this amazing comment that John makes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was the only Son from the Father. And then you begin to understand that this is the explanation for why He came The Son came from the Father, incarnate in the world, so that, as John has said in verse 12, when we receive Him and believe in His name, He he gives us the right to become the children of God, born not of the flesh, born not of human will, born not of blood, but born of God and brought into his family, made his children. So, it's kind of fascinating, isn't it? Embedded in these profound words, simple in English, simple in Greek, but profound words, is a whole world of biblical truth. And that whole world of biblical truth has one particular thing in view. It's to bring men and women, boys and girls, in our, in our sinfulness, in the puniness of our minds, in our, our weakness. It's to, it's to say to us, come and catch a glimpse of my glory in my Son, and then let my Son lead you into the family and bring you face to face with me and enable you to say to me, what He has said to me throughout all eternity. O Father, O Father, how much I love You, how much I trust You, how much I want to love You forever. It's absolutely stunning. and it's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there'll be a crowd of people around John in the glory, don't you think? And I think if there is, he'll just say, look over there. Look at him, face to face with us. And at the same time, in the bosom of his 
Heavenly Father, face to face with Him. And the wonderful thing is that together, as John goes on to say in the gospel, they've, they've sent their Holy Spirit into our hearts to bring us into that fellowship. That's what it means to be a Christian. Are you a Christian? It's the greatest thing in the world to be. It's the only thing worth being in the world. Because at the end of the day, in His light, we see light. In the mystery of His glorious being, everything, even even the hard things, the dark things, the strange things, the good things, the ordinary things, the extraordinary things, they all fit into place. And we know we're safe home with Him. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for the magnitude of the gospel. Thank You for, thank you for times when it comes to us and and speaks to us with such simplicity. We know that, that children could understand it, and then times when it comes to us and it stretches our minds and our understanding to breaking point, sometimes we are saying, Lord, I can't take any more of this. It's too much for me to take. And we know that this is the ultimate mystery, that You, O oh God, are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternal, loving, joyful, glorious communion, one God, and that You want us to be able to say through the Spirit, as John said, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. Oh, we praise You for this privilege, for the enjoyment of it in the Lord's day together. Keep us in that, we pray, during this week, for Jesus, our Savior's sake. Amen.